I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending September 20th. In this episode, we take a look at the AI Hardware Summit in Silicon Valley. This year's edition did not go as planned. Also, the semiconductor industry is, of course, global. India has an ambition to build a thriving semiconductor industry, building on the companies based there that have been designing chips for many, many years. Does the country have the infrastructure to make good on its ambitions? And we have a report from the Frankfurt Motor Show, traditionally one of the biggest shows of the year in the automotive industry. With all the interesting technological innovations that are being developed, you'd think it would have been a pretty exciting show this year. Yeah, no. What I got really was a sense from the show of an industry in distress. Um, so I, I've attended Frankfurt Motor Show every time it's been on since 2003, you know, all the way through the, the financial downturn of 2009. And this really was an industry where, you know, for the first time I saw entire exhibition halls closed. We'll return to Frankfurt in a minute. If you're developing technology that supports artificial intelligence, then the place to see and be seen is the AI Hardware Summit held in the fall in Silicon Valley every year. Kevin Crowell and Jim McGregor, our colleagues from Tirius Research, went to see what they could see and agreed to report back on what happened there for us. We suspected there might have been some trouble when we didn't hear back from them for two days. We finally got a chance to talk Thursday morning. The first voice you hear after mine will be Kevin's. When you hear a third voice, that'll be Jim. So, gents, what I'm hearing is that this show was kind of a bummer. Well, it was a, a bummer in that a number of companies didn't show. There was a lot of PowerPoint and not enough chip announcements. Uh, there was some chip announcements. I think uh, Intel showed their next generation training chips. Mm-hmm. We got some updates from Habana, which have a real inference chip you can buy, as well as a training chip that's in development. We made some progress, but there was uh, not enough real silicon. It's still too much PowerPoint. Jim, what do you think? No, I, I would agree. There was uh, some positives in terms of showing new applications, new technologies, but really not the pop we and the excitement we accepted. Well, let's talk about uh, first, uh, I mean, there's, this show was going to be the, the grand unveiling for at least a couple of companies. And, um, and as you mentioned, we had no shows, which is extremely unusual in my experience. Um, who, who failed to, to make it there and, and why do you think that might have been? Well, Grok, which is a very well-funded startup by the, the uh, designers of the original TPU-1 at Google, mm-hmm. they didn't show. And in fact, they were pre-beefing people and then bailed on the pre-briefs. Wow. The uh, general consensus is that there's something up with the company. They considered it a uh, customer issue, they said. They couldn't make it, but it's, it was, seemed like a very weak story. Yeah, the speculation was that either the company's being sold or that there's an issue with their silicon. Yeah, well, even if there's an issue with the silicon, don't you just sort of avoid the issue and talk about the progress you've made thus far? You would think so, because there's plenty of companies that showed up there with vaporware. 
<laughs> you know, uh, I think Samba Nova has been there two years in a row and haven't said crap about what they're actually doing. Yeah, the other option would be that actually, I think the primary option is that somebody's going to buy them. I don't know, or that the technology didn't work at all, and that's, they couldn't hide that. Yeah, that's amazing. Wow. Some of the other uh, no-shows, there was a company from China that just might not have been able to get visas. Uh, yes. Uh, Horizon? Horizon Robotics. Uh, the other company is Wave Computing, mm-hmm. uh, which is having some management turmoil. They went through their second CEO, and uh, I don't know what's going on there. The, but they weren't as prominent as Grok. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Esperanto hasn't attended the show either. No, but Esperanto is still in stealth mode, and so they didn't have to show. Yeah. They, they were never a sponsor. But th- there were, besides the startups, there were other major companies there. You had Qualcomm, Microsoft, Intel, NVIDIA. So, I mean, it was also some of the big guys were there, and they were very prominent. So who did show up with Silicon, and what did you think of it? Habana was there with Silicon, and they, they looked very real. They have a strong relationship with both Dell and Facebook. Intel was there showing their chips and they've got a strong relationship also with Facebook. And so they were real and they were showing silicon. Of course, NVIDIA was the target of most of the comparisons along the way. Uh, They were there at the end and uh, closing keynote, also talking about real silicon and working silicon. And, you know, what everybody tends to judge themselves against is NVIDIA. So uh, NVIDIA is the benchmark that all the other companies compare themselves against. And since they went last and since everyone was comparing themselves to NVIDIA, when they actually took the stage, did you get the sense that they'd managed to announce anything that suggested they'd maintained uh, their leading position or... Does it seem that uh, everybody else is indeed catching up? No, actually, they highlighted the fact that they've come out with new generations of technology every year and are continuing mm-hmm. to advance AI training and inference solutions. So they're not standing still. The thing everybody's waiting for is their seven nanometer product. At some point in time, NVIDIA has will launch a seven nanometer product. And that's what everybody is waiting to see what it looks like. And it's highly anticipated that it'll be a more specialized machine learning chip, not just a, a GPU, uh, but more of a dedicated solution. Do we have any idea uh, when we can uh, anticipate that coming out? We, we don't. And we're speculating. But if you just go by if they're past... Mm-hmm. They usually do their major announcements around their GPU technology conference in the spring, which is in March. So that's the uh, the silicon side of it. Um, did anybody show up with any interesting uh, research or, or proposals for new technologies? Actually, that was probably the ex- most exciting part of the conference. On the second day, we had a lot of these startups that are focused on alternative architectures, uh, especially sparse data sets. So we had guys that are like Rain, Neuromorphics. We had Enlightened Intelligence and Mythic. So we had people there doing analog solutions, optical computers, even uh, neuromorphic solutions. So it was. it's very interesting to see a lot of this innovation and new technology. It's important to note that a lot of these concepts have been around for 20 or 30 years. But we're now coming to a point where we're actually addressing new problems 
and the technology is advanced to a point where it may actually be applicable. But there's still a lot of questions about scaling, manufacturability, and even power consumption. So it's going to be interesting to see things play out. But we've really opened the Pandora's box in terms of opening the opportunity for new technology with AI. Well, mentioning the applications is interesting. Um, The applications are expanding and getting specialized, perhaps, uh, might be the word, or maybe there's a better word for it. Uh, But the idea being that with a much greater range of applications, you can build AI chips specifically for a category of problems. That's what we're seeing, right? Well, initially, that's what I think we're seeing today. We're seeing people doing uh, solutions that work well for robotics or vision or or Mm -hmm. audio. Uh, There's lots of specialized solutions today. During one of the panels, actually, somebody asked a question, how many AI chip vendors will there be in five years? And it's kind of, what what do you mean by a vendor? But my, my answer is all of them. I think AI functionality in one form or another will be incorporated in everything from microcontrollers up to servers. So therefore, that even though right now we're looking at dedicated AI processors, uh, AI could be processed on microcontrollers today, and uh, Xeon processors are still the major source of inference in the data center. So I think you're going to see AI processing in one form or another in just about every uh, processor you can think of. Well, the, that that speaks to the uh, the importance in the of of AI and the expansion of the market. The other half of that question is not are these companies going to die and fall away because of competition, but perhaps how many of them are likely to be purchased by larger companies looking to get their IP? Do you have any sense of how that is likely to shake out? You know, it's interesting you ask that because. Most of the acquisitions we've seen around AI so far have been around software, which is important because software is really driving the hardware. Intel has been the only company that's been acquiring hardware companies for AI solutions. However, we do think that there's going to be a wave of acquisitions either in the IP or in the companies uh, of a lot of these startups. So I would expect... That's probably going to start hitting next year. I think everyone's kind of weary of acquisitions right now because of the whole trade war issue and the fact that the U.S. or China could shut down an acquisition really quick. Mm, yeah. But I think you're going to see a new wave of acquisitions in the semiconductor industry around a couple of areas, and AI is a critical one. Yeah, I expect a lot of the uh, companies, the bigger companies, are waiting to see how the industry shakes out over time. Like I said, there's so many different solutions from analog to in-memory to IP to DSPs to uh, and on and on. And, and so we got to see how this all shakes out. And I think that's what the bigger companies are waiting for, waiting to see how this develops. And, and at some point in time, then they'll jump in and, and acquire some of the startups. Well, excellent. Thanks, Kevin, Jim. I appreciate you coming on the show this week. No problem. Thanks a lot for having us. Yes. All Cheers. Right. On EE Times this week, we have a story written by Nitin Dahad about some M&A action in India. HCL, a sizable IT company, purchased Sankalp Semiconductor for $25 million. India has long had the ambition of fostering a thriving semiconductor industry. Was the acquisition of Sankalp a sign of a growing chip industry in India? Aspen Core Global Editor-in-Chief Balaji Ojo talked to Nitin about that. 
Hello, Nitin. Uh, good to speak with you. You are in London attending an industry conference. How is that going? Um, that's going well, yes. Uh, hi, Balaji. I'm in um, London um, uh, attending the Future Horizons uh, uh, six-monthly uh, six uh, industry update and forecast, semiconductor industry forecast. How is that looking? Are we looking at another cycle? Is it the beginning of another down cycle or is it just a flatlining that we can then expect a recovery within months or within the next six months to a year? Um, so what uh, Malcolm Penn, uh, the, um, who, who runs Future Horizons, has been telling us, yeah, impressing on us this uh, today, is that um, over the last 30 plus years, yeah, the industry has gone on a sort of very constant 10% uh, growth in terms of IC unit sales. And uh, it, it's cyclical in terms of supply and demand. And we'll, we'll see that upturn again you know, coming 2020. Excellent. Well, one of the areas where I know Mark Penn has been following this industry for quite a while, and uh, it's interesting that uh, just this uh, recent few days, you wrote an article about India saying that India is branching out into cheap design. I wonder if he had anything to say about that part of the world, including uh, the rest of uh, Asia, uh, include that uh, would include China, by the way. So he's kind of talked about uh, the US-China um, uh, sort of impact of the US, U.S.-China trade war, but also I think uh, it's quite interesting in that China, I think, focused on. Um, he, basically, he said uh, that uh, the U.S. Um, and China are very strong in the in the technology and the talent, but China has a talent, uh, and they're using a lot of um, tech, uh, equipment. So, for example, the capital equipment, uh, which is produced by sort of non-Chinese companies. And the U.S. can pull the plug any time, but I think the the issue is is always going to be, you know, is that going to be shooting themselves in the foot? I mean, I mean obviously, it'll hurt the, their biggest company like Apple. Excellent. Well, just to kind of return to the subject of India, uh, you know, the, the article you wrote talking about India's growing expansion into cheap design, I was asking myself, well, India and Indians have been involved in this market for decades. So what's yes. changed? Is it something new or is it an expansion or is it that now these designs are becoming much more local than, than before? It's actually quite interesting. I never understood why India's always been talking about trying to create its own semiconductor manufacturing, but because of the infrastructure, it's never succeeded. And if you look at the Semiconductor Industry Association there, they've always talked about wanting to be self-sufficient, just like China has been talking about being self-sufficient. But if you take that aside, actually from the the design ecosystem point of view, it's been very strong. And that's because Texas Instruments, which established there back in the 80s, um, and then you had Intel, and then you obviously Synopsys and Cadence, the EDA firms. What they discovered very early on is Indians are very talented in terms of software engineering and in terms of um, a lot of the computer science and the uh, design engineering. And what that's um, meant is they have grown huge offshoring centers, but those offshoring centers now evolved because as, as everybody moves up the value chain, they've evolved. And you're seeing, and I, as I wrote in my article, you're seeing the Texas Instruments children, i.e. the companies that came out of people who are experienced uh, designing chips at Texas Instruments in, in Bangalore are now sort of creating their second or third enterprises. And uh, a lot of them are in the RF space, the uh, 
uh, analog space, which is quite interesting. What, what seems to be missing for me, you know, when you look at Europe, when you look at North America, in fact, even when you look at China, you do have certain companies, uh, the, the big name companies in Western Europe and in North America. And then you have, uh, you know, companies like TSMC in, uh, in Taiwan and, uh, you know, some up and coming companies in China itself. What is the landscape like in India? If Indians really want to play a role in semiconductor design, well, you also need to have some homegrown companies that are big enough to take on the big players in the, in the global uh, environment. Um, yes, that's right. I, I mean, uh, one of the things I think um, I'm not seeing uh, signs of yet is where we'll get those big players. What I'm seeing is um, the, the growth of small companies, which are then gobbled up by you know, larger companies. And one of the examples I quote in my article is Cosmic Circuits, um, it was acquired by Cadence back in, I think, 2013. Um, and um, the founder of that then went on uh, to work with Le Poutin and, and invest in other companies, and he's on the boards of various other companies. So what we're seeing is, is this sort of bubbling up of little companies and growing. I'm not really seeing that big sign yet, and I think that probably is because there's not, uh, as, as I say in my article, maybe the, the funding at the levels of Silicon exactly. Valley, for example, is not going in. Exactly. And, and then, so what they're looking for is exits, you know, sort of anything from 25 to $250 million as opposed to growing you know, that billion-dollar company. Well, what, what China has done very well, at least that they're trying to do, is that they are funding some of these startups. You know, what is the government's role like in India at this moment? I haven't seen a single item out there that says, you know, the Indian government is putting out uh, or setting up a fund of 10, 15, 20 billion dollars to support a homegrown IC market. Um, they've talked about it, but I've not seen any signs apart from sort of uh, stimulating startup ecosystems. I've not seen any other signs in terms of infrastructure, you know, for sort of larger projects. Uh, but there have been as part of the national uh, electronics policy and part of um, uh, the Make in India campaign. You know, people are talking about manufacturing and, and then stimulating some design ecosystem. But I've not seen any more than that, as far as I can see. Maybe I'm missing it, but I've not seen it. Okay. I guess, uh, well, during your next trip to India, that will be the next thing that uh, we at Aspenco and E-Times will be looking for you uh, to find out. I know we are trying at this moment to get some additional correspondence over there. So we'll be setting them loose on helping us to dig up information about the ecosystem there and how the uh, the private uh, sector and the government are going to be working on building that, uh, you know, Indian IC market that everybody is looking at. I mean, 1.1 billion people, that's quite a large market, right? Yeah, <laughs> a very large market. And I, I, I actually sort of um, head out there, you know, maybe once or twice a year, and I'll be going again the, towards the end of this year. So, yes, definitely be exploring again. And then, as you said, you know, we'll also be expanding our network there. Fantastic. Thanks again, uh, Nitin. It's always a pleasure to catch up with you. What's next on your plate? Um, so I'm actually off to the MEMS and Sensors um, conference in Grenoble next week, and uh, then the European Microwave Conference um, in Paris uh, a couple of weeks later. So uh, yes, um, those are sort of on my agenda, immediate agenda. 
Well, we've touched on India. So I'm going to be probably at Grenoble with you, uh, or if not, we'll catch up in Paris. So uh, following up on India, I guess we'll be talking about the European IC market next. Nice speaking with you again, Nathan, and uh, have a wonderful week. Thank you, Balaji. Watch for Nitin's reports on eetimes.com from his upcoming trip to Grenoble. The automotive industry is developing a huge number of innovations for future vehicles. The Frankfurt Motor Show is the place to show off new features and new technologies. Colin Barnden was at the show reporting for EE Times. His story is on the website. International editor Junko Yoshida caught up with him to ask him about his experiences at the show. Hi, Colin. How are you? Hey, Junko. I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? All right. I understand you came back from um, the Frankfurt Motor Show last week, right? How many days were you there? That's right. So I was there for three days in total. I was there for the two press days on Tuesday and Wednesday and the opening day uh, on Thursday. Okay. All right. So in your story, right off the bat, you said that you, you talked about the automotive industry saying that predicted the winter is coming. Why did you say that? Okay, I mean, what I got really was a sense from the show of an industry in distress. Um, so I, I've attended Frankfurt Motor Show every time it's been on since 2003, you know, all the way through the, the financial downturn of 2009. Right. And this really was an industry where, you know, for the first time I saw entire exhibition halls closed. Um, I've wow. seen I've seen some exhibition statistics, actually. 2017, there were 994 exhibitors and 2019, there were 800 um, so that's a, a fall of about 20% uh, in terms of exhibitors. And, you know, probably the exhibition space was probably down about as much. So that's an industry in distress. Wow. All right. So speaking of the trend of the market, I thought it was very clever of you to actually give it a name, the transition from case to cape. Please explain what case is and what cape is. So case was the, uh, the, 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 the phrase du jour of two years ago, really, for the industry, everybody talking about connectivity, uh, autonomous, shared and electrification. Um, and as we've been talking about and as, you've, as I've been writing to, uh, um, you know, for the EE Times uh, this yeah. year, you know, really what people, what, what the trend that I'm seeing is much more about um, assisted driving rather than autonomous driving. Mm. Um, and really what's coming out now is that it's all about the individual, you know, so this trend that people were talking about so much about mass mobility as a service and robo taxis, what I'm seeing now much more is about privately owned vehicles with content um, and experiences really very much tailored to the individual user, even to the point of playlists. Yep. automatic seat positions based on interior cameras that are measuring this the, the size and the weight of the driver yeah, that's and, moving, yeah. and, and moving the, um, the, the seat and the wheel into an optimum driving position. Yeah. Um, how do they do that? I mean, what technologies are used uh, to individualize the seat setting and all that? So there's, there's two ways you could do that. One is either a time of flight camera or the other one is an infrared vision uh, camera, which oh. is starting to be installed in the car now through driver monitoring systems. Yeah. And essentially it's looking at the driver's body um, and just making a, an estimation uh, and, and very good actually from the, the ZF system of uh, what your position is and what your size is and mo moving the seat forward or back, moving the, uh, the seat uh, more upright or laid back and then moving the, the steering wheel up and down. Um, and the uh, the experience that I had was the position, the driving position was perfect. Wow. 
That's pretty amazing. All right, so tell us a little bit about the electrification. We knew it was coming and um, all the regulations and etc. But I also um, read in the uh, Financial Times today, um, they're talking about that over this past weekend when the show was open to public, uh, there was a big demonstration against the automotive industry in general. Um, what's going on? So I didn't see any of the demonstrations. I was in the show the whole time. But right. uh, I think if, if we go back to 2015, we get yeah. what's now known as Dieselgate, which was really the, the talk about, uh, you know, VW and, and some of the VW brands using what was subsequently termed a defeat device right. um, to defeat the, the emissions testing regulations uh, here in Europe and, and also in, in the US. Yeah. Uh, and I think really what people are demonstrating against is the uh, generally the, the emissions of the, um, the, the tailpipe emissions of, of internal combustion engine. Yep. So there's really this whole talk about, you know, well, if we go to electrification, then we have zero emission. Yep. But the argument that I've always made is all that's actually happening is you're moving the emissions from the tailpipe to the public generation infrastructure because <laughs> um, right. you can't generate uh, electricity emissions free unless yep. you're doing it through nuclear. Yeah. Um, you, you can do it through renewables, but, um, you know, you've got, um, you know, obviously issues of the sun doesn't shine at night. Yep. Um, so really, I, I think uh, there's a lot of people really are saying, you know, we don't want uh, we don't want the emissions. And, and my question is, well, then how do we actually do transportation? What, what actually is the solution? So it's, yeah. it's really quite a complex problem and uh, it will it will go on for decades. Yeah. But the, the clear trend was at the show it seems like uh, electrification is no longer just for the luxury car, but really the mainstream everyday car. Precisely. So there were electric uh, VWs, there were electric uh, Hondas. I mean, essentially, there's electric vehicles now offered by all of the mainstream brands. Yeah. Um, whether they can make the vehicles profitable is still unknown. Yeah. Um, but that's the direction, really, that, that it's going into. And this is really the trend that I'm seeing now is that the, the, the huge development costs that the, the OEMs and the tier ones have had for electric vehicles, if they're going to continue doing that now into or, or autonomous driving, um, you know, at what point are they bled so much red ink that they have to say, you know, hang on, stop. We just don't have a viable business here if we keep doing this. And, and I think really what I saw here in 2019 is the OEMs and the tier ones essentially saying the development costs of this technology are now getting so huge yeah um you know and, and vehicle sales are falling um that we've got a problem here with our business models so that really 2019 was the first time i've seen true distress in the industry oh interesting all right um one more thing that i wanted to ask you is that um uh, you talk about the uh, personalization but i you also mentioned in your story uh biden's uh new model oh i guess that's a concept car i guess um the uh 48 inch <laughs> screen um tell me that that to me that seems really obscene tell me a little bit about that okay so you actually have to see it for real you you yeah. have to see that car and it's it's a production vehicle yeah um so it goes into production for china in the first half of next year and it okay. will go to the us and europe for production in the beginning of 2021 yeah um so what you've got there and you would think that that's actually highly dangerous to have a screen that big um a it's distracting so they have got a very advanced driver monitoring system uh there to make sure that the driver is paying attention to the road um, so this, I believe, is a system from Seeing Machines, and I think that will probably be the most advanced driver monitoring system in use in a production vehicle when that car launches uh, next year. Yeah. Um, and also what they're doing essentially is um, enabling the, the information in front of the, the driver 
um, separately from the passenger. Um, so you can have navigation information and all the driving information in front of the driver. Um, and then oh. in front of the front passenger, you can have video, you can have um, uh, playlists, you can have all sorts of, of essentially personalized entertainment. Right. Um, and what uh, Byton were very clear about is the fact that they've got um, crash resistant coating. It's a double coated screen, um, not only to reduce um, reflectivity and, and reflection, um, but also in the event of a crash that the, the glass that is part of the display won't go flying around the cabin. Um, so it looks at oh, first wow. like it's a very dangerous situation. And yet there's a lot of thought that's been put into the design of that system to make it um, crash, yeah. crash safe and, and okay. usable in, in uh, everyday driving. Okay. Oh, great. I said that was the last question, but I just couldn't resist asking one more question. That in your story, you said your favorite was uh, BMW's con Concept 4. Why is it your favorite? Tell okay, me. So your, yeah. it, it looks fantastic. But what I've actually got from talking to the tier ones is I can start to piece together parts of what is going into that car. So it has got, um, it's going to be, I believe, the first production vehicle with the Mobileye IQ5, which is obviously going to be very exciting. That's the, the next generation, the Mobileye technology. Yep. I believe it's going to have an ex uh, the most advanced driver monitoring system in 2021. Again, I believe that's from Seeing Machines. Yeah. And if my estimation is correct, then I saw Continental in a side presentation at the show demonstrate the, for the first time what they call augmented reality HUD, HUD head-up display. Um, and that's oh. using the entire windshield as a head-up display. And, and I've never seen that before. I actually talked about it in my piece in December last uh, year called The Ice Habit. Yeah, yeah. Um, and th th I was talking about that as a concept for maybe 2028. Um, uh, and I suspect actually that might be in that BMW in 2021. And I suspect that will be the star of CES 2021. So that the shape is fantastic. And I suspect yeah. some of the, the features and functionality that are a part of the user experience of that car are going to be really really exciting to watch so i'm looking forward to that being released all right on that note well thank you so much colin thank you very much junko always good to talk to you now i've sat in a python and that dashboard truly is impressive it wraps all the way across the cabin from the driver's side to the shotgun seat it struck me as a massive distraction but perhaps once on the road it won't be we'll have to see what happens when people start buying and driving them At the end of every weekly briefing, we take a look back at technology anniversaries. Are you ready? Buckle up. Here we go. On September 16th in 1985, Steve Jobs resigned from Apple. Also on September 16th, only this time in 1997, Jobs was named interim CEO of Apple. Seven months earlier, he'd rejoined the company when Apple bought his company next. Upon his return to Apple, Jobs presided over one of the most successful runs in consumer electronics history, reviving the company's core computer business with systems such as the iMac, while adding the iPod, iPhone, and Apple Watch. In the early 1980s, Carnegie Mellon University had an online bulletin board. This was prior to the World Wide Web, of course. Users would toss jokes into their messages, and often enough, one of their colleagues failed to get the humor, and a flame war broke out. Something's never changed, huh? To curtail endless angry digressions, the CMU researchers proposed using a visual shorthand of some sort when they weren't being serious, and when they were. A staff member named Scott Fallman suggested a sideways smiley face 
colon dash close parenthesis. Use that to indicate a joke and a sideways frown colon dash open parenthesis for being serious. His suggestions caught on and that opened the floodgate for endless variations. Years later, the folks at CMU realized that Fallman was almost certainly the first person to ever use an ASCII smiley face. But how to prove it? They located an old magnetic tape recorder, fired it up, and searched through boxes filled with old storage tapes before they finally found it. Fallman sent his suggestion on September 19, 1982. Fallman's now Professor Emeritus at Carnegie Mellon School of Computer Science. He apparently earned the honor for something other than inventing emoticons. On September 17, 1976, NASA rolled out the first space shuttle from its hangar for a public unveiling. Originally called the Constitution, a write-in campaign convinced NASA to rename the vessel the Enterprise in honor of the TV starship. Most of the main cast of Star Trek and producer Gene Roddenberry were at the event. That shuttle was supposed to have been retrofitted with engines and a heat shield, but it never was. The shuttle Enterprise never made it into space. In an era when a lot of our film and TV blockbusters are special effects extravaganzas in which technology leads to some dystopia, it's worth remembering that a science fiction TV show from the 1960s inspired a generation of engineers, many of whom ended up at NASA, inspired them to build extraordinary things for the benefit of the world. On March 7, 2011, Astronauts on the Discovery Shuttle got this wake-up call. Space, the final frontier. These have been the voyages of the Space Shuttle Discovery. Her 30-year mission, to seek out new science, to build new outposts, to bring nations together on the final frontier, to boldly go and do what no spacecraft has done before. And that's your weekly briefing for the week ending September 20th. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McRae at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. The transcript of this podcast can be found on eetimes.com, complete with links to the articles we refer to, along with photos and video. We'll be back next Friday with a new edition of EE Times On Air. I'm Brian Santo.